Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast. Proudly ranked the number one podcast by Canadian financial advisors in the 2022 Enveronics Advisor Digital Experience Study. Today, we're bringing you an engaging discussion featuring Portfolio Manager Ramona Prasad and Director of Quantitative Market Strategy Denise Chisholm, joining host Pat Bolland. This conversation was recorded during Fidelity Canada's Focus 2022 event in Boston. Both Ramona and Denise should be familiar names to our podcast audience. Denise is responsible for researching Fidelity's portfolio construction strategies, which then is a resource for Fidelity's portfolio managers. Ramona manages several dividend-focused portfolios and maintains attention on downside protection and delivering strong risk-adjusted returns. So today we'll hear their thoughts on the market environment and business cycle, as well as finding alpha from top-down to bottom-up. Also, some more information on how Denise's use of historical probability provides insights to the portfolio managers on what may be coming ahead. This podcast was recorded on July 15th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. This is a really interesting session that I'm looking forward to because we get big picture and we get actual application. I think it's a great combination. So we're going to start with you, big picture. And let's talk about your current, and you're a quant, but you're more than just a quant numbers person. You take a bigger perspective than that. So describe your approach. And then I want you to talk to me about the markets right now and whether we're looking at a recession, those kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I'm not a classic quant, but I use historical probabilities as my tool. So in terms of when people look at the market or when people look at economics, you can always look through history and find out what's predictive and not. And as much as things are definitely not similar cycle to cycle, I think that you can look to see patterns and know when those patterns are predictive statistically and then apply them to the current situation. And I think, you know, in some ways what the Fed is doing in terms of normalizing policy has been done many cycles in the past. It's a little different in terms of the speed, although we saw a similar speed in the 1990s. Um, It's a little different in terms of what we've seen for inflation. But even what after the CPI print yesterday, and we actually spoke a little bit about this, what you've seen is that the Fed is expected to hike a little less than 350 basis points over the course of a one-year time horizon. We can argue about whether or not those expectations are too high, but when you look back in history and you say, okay, what are the odds that we had a a recession or an economic contraction within that year or the year following, your base case is actually still an economic expansion, meaning it doesn't tilt the odds towards a recession disproportionately. So I think that it isn't a foregone conclusion that the U.S. economy has to contract. Okay. 
But where are we in the cycle then? So I, I think that that's an important part as it relates to the markets, because every equity market investor should remember that the equity market is a discounting mechanism. So we can talk about cycles for sure, but I think you have to understand, especially given what we just saw in the pandemic, equities can bottom anywhere from 25% of the way through a recession to 75% of the way through the recession. And from any recessionary market low, 75% of the gains in the equity market are in by the time the recession is over. So that part is very important to understand. Remember, just going through the pandemic, and I think that you know prior echoes really do echo throughout the next couple of years, the market remembers quite tangibly what just happened. We discounted one of the deepest economic contractions in one month. So the bigger question is, what are we discounting right now? The two things that I follow that help you understand what the market is discounting are one where we certainly agree, which is valuation spreads. That's usually when anybody sells, any investors sell anything that they think is risky, they buy anything that they think is safe, the names change every cycle, but that gap remains and it's usually a risk adverse environment. When you see it widen out, and we're certainly there on forward earnings estimates, when you see it widen out, doesn't mean there's a bottom in the equity market, but it means that if you are willing to look through any bottom, typically you have made money in the equity market over the coming year. Another thing that I watch is the relative valuation of defensive sectors. So if you divide up the sectors into things that you need versus things that you want, defensive sectors and cyclical sectors, if you look at the relative valuation of utilities, consumer staples, healthcare, and for the most part, the old telecommunication services sector, you'll find that they had one of the sharpest revaluations in history where the stocks are getting expensive, and they're in their 96th percentile of relative valuation historically. <laughs> so that's a long-winded way of saying people are scared, and usually when people are scared over the coming year, that provides you an opportunity. Okay, now Ramona, against that macro picture, you're a bottom-up fundamental okay. investor. Everybody got that? <laughs> <laughs> you got that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I love you. It was fast. All right, I talked fast. It was fast, but we got okay. it. Kept up. <clears throat> she played perfectly in here. So, but do you, uh, like, how do you use that <clears throat> macro information? I mean, she's going to talk a little slower for you in the office. It's an email. <laughs> I type email. <laughs> um, but how do you use that? I mean, do you still focus on your valuations or? So the the, the market has been um, just so macro since coming out of the coming out of global finance. It's been all about rates and all about top down. And so this idea of being able to separate valuation and macro is maybe um, they're very intertwined. Valuation is is very much trying to discount the macro as opposed to necessarily discounting stock by stock fundamentals. And what the markets are trying to do is figure out recession, no recession, and discount it. So Denise and I talk a lot, um, which is why I can process everything you just said. <laughs> um, and so spreads are widening. And maybe where we disagree a little bit, the, the chat we've had the last couple of weeks is, yes, they're wider on PE and free cash flow. But where is the widening? And, and I think you would agree the widening is kind of in like a lot of it is being driven by like stuff that doesn't have any doesn't have positive earnings Correct. so like say buy small and mid-cap biotech so i look at that and i'm like mm, can i really generalize to say that there's enough dispersion in stocks at large and certainly in my part of stocks which is the high quality large cap universe but then the pushback like i can almost like have the conversation you and i would have by myself because i know <laughs> what you would say the pushback is the 96 percentile of the high quality defensive stuff the you know like staples being expensive 
suggesting there's something else that's not. So the valuation picture today is we're on our way to discounting badness, and I'm kind of waiting for more of a widening, more fear in my world, which is large cap quality, to really step it up. But based on Denise's work especially, um, which you're right, it's not super, it's not traditional quantity, it's quantity in a very like statistical way, which is sort of you like, you really speak my language. I've been, so I sort of de-risked all throughout the year and recently have been slowly re-risking, which, kind of, which might sound kind of crazy because everybody's freaked out about recession and freaked out about inflation. But because valuation spreads are widening, what I've been trying to train myself to do over the last 10 years is to re-risk into that widening, like at a very slow pace. Which is exactly, she says, happened. But right. to be fair, to characterize it then, you're macro aware, but you still fall back on the fundamentals. Oh, absolutely. Like you can't, like knowing that, okay, the sort of top-down signals like like fear in the form of dispersion are saying something, then you, you got to go figure out what you're going to buy. And so what I then do is I look at intra-sector spread. So where is that fear widest? So at one point, it was really wide in energy. And so that sort of like targets you, okay, I'm going to go look in energy. And then you look to me, what I would then go do is look at the highest free cash flow to equity yields within that sector and then make sure it matches my process. So not by the highly speculative stuff, but by like Suncor, which you, you, know, you folks all know, um, which for me is reasonable in terms of quality, but also getting exposure to, to what's driving those double digit free cash flow yields. So I would look for intra-sector dispersion, which is a measure of fear, and then go go you know, look at the stocks in there to figure it out from a bottom-up perspective. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of ways I can go out of that. Um, you mentioned, I'll come back to energy. I'll come back to energy. No but way. before we do that, I'd like your take on inflation in particular and the interest rate uh, cycle that we're going through right now. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I think that first to talk about inflation, you have to define what you're talking about. And I think that that's the biggest challenge of this cycle is we essentially have four measures of inflation and we've got the widest dispersion in history. So you have headline CPI, you have core CPI, you have headline PCE deflator, and you have core PCE deflator. So those are four measures, right? They're usually around you know, within 50, 60, maybe 100 basis points of each other. On an annualized basis, on a run rate, even given the CPI we just saw, they now range from 4 to 11%. Wow. So it is that wide. So Have, have we, we seen that before? Yeah, ever? No, we have never seen it this wide before, but we have seen it sort of in top quartile wides before, and you can actually measure, right? So if you say, well, we know that this is not likely to last, they are likely to converge. Which one are they likely to converge to? It is actually the core PCE deflator, which is what they use to deflate consumption indices in the NIPA or the GDP accounts, and it is what usually the Fed targets, and it is what is strongest in terms of correlation to consumer spending. So there's a lot of history that suggests as much as the headline CPI is what makes the news, what really determines how consumers spend is looking through food and energy prices, dipping into their savings, maybe expanding credit to offset that, and really thinking about their core inflation. That measure on an annualized run rate basis is only 4% right now with very strong headwinds. Right, so we've seen the dollar, right, the biggest strength in the dollar, I think, over a course of six months that we've ever seen um, since the dollar actually started trading. We're certainly seeing record highs in inventories, even now relative to sales in the retail space. Um, we're any measure of supply chain you can see is actually coming much more unglued with supply sort of certainly coming into the markets. All of these are deflationary pressures off of potentially a base of 4%. 
So this is not the story that's being told in the markets right now, but I do think that this is the underlying run rate of the problem that the Fed is dealing with. So if you look through, again, historically, and you say, okay, your run rate of inflation is 4%, actually inflation expectations are only around 3%. This is very different than what you have seen in the, in the 1970s and 1980s, which everybody is fearful of. What you've seen is that the Federal Reserve doesn't usually have to raise 300 to 350 basis points in a given year. So we could be, just like equity markets V bottom, inflation tends to V peak. So all of that acceleration that we've seen over the last three to four months could very quickly decelerate in the back half of the year, which is very correlated to those valuation spreads in the equity market, which could relieve some pressure and potentially provide upside in stocks. And we can certainly talk about which ones are more beneficial, which sectors in the market are actually uh, more targeted to that. Okay, but the Fed target is still 2%. It's running at 4 and yes, it could back off. The 3 is still above what they want. And it's that inflationary number is the driver of the interest rates. Yes. Well, so... The bond market is a discounting mechanism as much as the stock market is. So it wouldn't surprise me. Remember, the belly of the curve is still quite wide. So three months to, uh, let's see, three months through 10 years is still, I think I looked today, it's like 150 basis points. So there's still, you know, a a ways to go to to flatten that yield curve uh, that you could actually see peaking out in terms of long-term treasuries in the 10-year basis, which argues that we have seen the bulk of the move regardless of what the Federal Reserve does. So again, the bond market can discount things in advance. And even when you look at when the Fed is hiking, do you want to buy bonds or sell bonds? On average, you actually want to buy bonds. So that shows you just how mathematically they can discount in advance. And the only other thing that I'd say as it relates to the Federal Reserve is, look, I hear you. I know that they're saying 2%. 2% was never a target until like 2015 that they actually came out with. And targets change cycle to cycle every cycle. I think that there is a real argument to be made that 2% was always too low. And the sweet spot for the equity markets from inflation is really about two and a half to five. So if we can shift into that core run rate being sustainable on a year-on-year basis with the headwinds we see, Mm. that might actually be in the sweet spot by year-end for the equity market. So practical application in the stock markets, inflation, interest rates, is it already built into the markets, do you think? Stock markets. So um, just backing up what has been really interesting in hearing, basically hearing this message in various forms as we've talked over the last few months is there's this consensus view. So you you said it well, that the market is not really thinking of it this way. This consensus view of runaway inflation. And then when Denise and I have like sort of picked it apart, all those different pieces that she just said, I was able to sort of build more conviction that, wow, yes, this is actually set to decelerate. So when we got the print yesterday, what was so interesting is how the market's how the pre-market looked, how the market looked initially, and then how the market ended, it was like one big blah for a really big print. So right. So to your question, the market, I think, is sort of trying to figure this out. So when we got the first, what was it, like 8 point, so yesterday was 9.1, and the one before was 8 something, high 8. Yeah. Market freaked out about that. Right. And amazingly, one print later, just one print later, and we end very blah. I mean, today is today the market struggling again. So I think we're, um, and you made a really, really good point, which is this last incredibly deep downturn was discounted in a month. So I'm sort of amazing, like right? cognitively trying to understand what has caused this to speed up so much. So we could very easily discount like this transition that we might be going through mm. in inflation extremely quickly. So that's what I want to be prepared for. 
So you're getting ready. It's not an opportunity right now. I don't think it's binary like that. I think it's a it's gradual with the sort of mental flexibility to just flex it the other way if you need to. Oh. Yeah, I don't think it's binary on off. It's like I'm edging to this. My base case view is the market is probably going to quickly discount deceleration. In, I hate the fact that we have to. I have to invest kind of with like all this macro stuff, but that's what it's been since twenty since two thousand eight, yeah. two thousand nine very quickly be like, oh my God, they're going to see all the stuff that she's seeing, right? Denise is seeing and be like, okay. Because the, then you can paint a picture of what the Fed will and will not do. Then you could start to figure out, is it tech or is it not tech? Is it tech or cyclicals essentially, right? Because you, you kind of know what the interest rate mm -hmm. picture is. And my sort of worry that I'm trying to prepare for is that can happen extremely fast. Right. So that's why for me, it's like a, a progression in that direction but with a crazy amount of flexibility if I need to like move it the other way quickly because some there's some kind of variable that do you keep like a timeline? Ukraine was Ukraine was a big variable. Yeah. 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 Right. That's so when you get true. a variable, when you get like a like I had a base case right before Ukraine happened. My base case was was continued recovery out of pandemic. And where I was invested pre-Ukraine was tons of European exposure because those guys were like slow to incorporate recovery. Like nobody was traveling or there wasn't any expectations. All the travel stocks and discretionary stocks and like everything was super cheap. So I was all in on that. And then Ukraine happened and <laughs> it just So moved. you do you not have a base case now, now or do you have a timeline to establish that base case? You, you specific to Europe or generally? Generally. My base case is what I, what I just, I think the market will start to see the ways in which inflation can decelerate and therefore paint a picture about the Fed and therefore make decisions about things like tech, which make decisions about sectors that are very interest rate sensitive one way or the other, you know, that have these correlations and anti-correlations to rates and discount that very quickly. So I'm moving in that direction, but okay. with, you know, with this incredible flexibility to move in a completely different direction if something happens. Okay, good. Then we're going to come back to what you were mentioning earlier and a sector, energy. That's so I'd love your thoughts on energy. Yeah. Uh, after that, I'll ask you about, uh, I think I'll do technology because then sure. I want to get to Ramona and her application of that. Yeah. In some ways, uh, energy and technology are the two sort of ballast ends of right. the inflation macro trade. But I think what investors need to know is it's not all about inflation and macro and rates in terms of whether or not you want to own tech or energy. There's really a huge valuation disconnect. And energy is the exact opposite of technology. And we're going to find out over the next couple of years, which was the biggest bigger driver, but history suggests that that relative valuation is actually the bigger driver. So the unique part about energy, one, is how much people underestimated and investors underestimated the earnings potential of the energy companies. We've seen like the last six months, on average, every single month, forward earnings estimates have increased by 10%, month on month. So this, I mean, it's shocking, right? I've never seen, I have all the sector data going back to 1962. I've never seen that anywhere in the database. So this is massively underestimated, which is why, why the stocks are so cheap currently. And I think that that, you know, that, that earnings trajectory is likely sustainable. CapEx to sales, all of that productive capital they put in in the last cycle that investors were yelling at them, no, don't spend all that money, don't spend all that money, is actually paying off now because that productive capital is out there relative to their sales base. A lot of it's dropping to the bottom line. So they're generating more free cash flow this cycle than any cycle that I've seen historically. So where does that leave you? So a valuation perspective, they're in the you know, bottom decile they've ever been. And what that means for investors is that you're less dependent on crude oil than you think. Certainly, we've seen a big give back over the last whatever it is, six weeks, um, or however, whatever time frame that you're looking at. But what you see over the long run 
is that when energy stocks are this cheap, you still have 60% odds of outperformance, which doesn't sound like a lot, if crude prices actually contract even more than 10 to 20%. So it shows you just how pervasive value can be as a critical driver to stocks, even outside the commodity. So I do think that energy is still a positive risk reward. That said, I think it has been leadership in the market over the last, let's call it two years. And I think that that leadership is potentially shifting. So I think it's a positive risk reward for energy, but I think other sectors are likely to do better. Uh, tech. Yeah, tech, I think, is still largely in the crosshairs. Mm. So I don't think it's going to be the laggard that it has been, again, same way that energy and technology were sort of the bounds, where energy was the big outperformer and technology and communication services were the big underperformer. I think that they're both going to shift to the muddy middle with energy being, on average, an outperformer and technology still being a little in the crosshairs. Because when I look at the data going back to 1962, what you'll see is that despite the fact that the stocks have come off quite a bit, so have earned because margins have compressed a little. So what you've seen is the stocks not get you know, a lot more expensive, but a little more expensive, so much so that they're still in the top quartile of their range. That has usually tilted your, your odds towards underperformance. Now, look, we may get a little bit of a macro headwind here, certainly, which is you know, to the extent that people are massively underweight tech. Maybe you want to cover that somewhat, if I'm right, and if inflation does decelerate sharply, and if a lot of the interest rate rises are discounted, because technology is certainly correlated to that. But I think it's got some more valuation to work off, with the exception that I would say of semiconductors, mm -hmm. which on a price to book basis is where, I mean, we're close to the bottom tercile again. So. Okay. So now where the rubber hits the road, you invest. And you mentioned Suncor earlier on as mm -hmm. part of the energy uh, mm -hmm. thesis, if you will. Give me some examples of how so you as energy um, sort of got cheaper, so into this double-digit free cash flow yield type valuations for, for large cap, relatively higher quality names, I added them. So, so for the last couple of years, I've been over fairly significantly overweight energy, which has been helpful. And I've kept the ones where that free cash flow yield is still very healthy, but at the margin to Denise's point, pulling back, because the, especially with the outperformance, the overweight of the sector just yeah. got really big from a con portfolio construction perspective. So I never like for my sector weights to just get sort of cumbersome. Yeah. So I've pulled back, but with the understanding that there's still cheapness in the sector, so I'm not sure I'm going like underweight, right? Because there's, and to your point about where are the earnings revisions going to come from? So there's this fear in the market, which is why the market can't really sort of process yesterday, I think yet, of um, is this it or do we have another leg with earnings revisions, right? Well, once all this macro stuff hits the earnings, is that another leg down in the market? And you've had, you and I have had extensive yep. like debate about that. Yep. So for me, like I wonder if energy is a sector that holds up relatively well from an earnings revisions perspective versus, say, I don't know, discretionary mm -hmm. that has to deal right. with you know all this macro stuff actually you know crushing the bottom line. So that's on energy, and then at the margin where I've been re-risking is into cyclical tech. So like semis that have yep. gotten really cheaper. So that's where we agree, and I've been. I'm very much like thinking through whether to start getting involved with discretionary. So as much as I think a lot of the earnings revisions pressure is going to come in that sector, you're getting some really compelling valuations. So there's Book this, yield spreads have blown out too. There's this yeah. case for a you know some of it is in the stocks. So that comes to where am I going to stock pick? Where you know a company is going to report in a couple of weeks. And it's going to be awful, but the stock will be okay. So you saw it with Target and Walmart just 
get crushed on their ability to or inability to manage inventory and just manage supply chains and all of that. So as an example, you know, will Target get crushed again if their if their Q2 is poor? Mm. Not sure, right? It stocks down like what, 30, 40% yeah. at some point, yeah. right? So discretionary at the margins where I'm like looking more deeply and looking at where I can find valuation support going into very squishy earnings in a couple of weeks. And I'm probably lightening up on the more defensive stuff like staples, which are working beautifully today. Um, and as I look at that and feel good about my portfolio, I'm like, oh, I got to take some of this off, <laughs> right? Staples, utilities, and keeping healthcare because valuation dispersion, so fear in healthcare, certainly pharma and like distributors is still pretty high. Yep. So that's kind of the balance of like the risky stuff and the stuff where I can get quality dividends, low beta downside protection, and just trying to balance it as we're in this one big like unwieldy transition that we're in right now. But a real big focus I'm hearing on American markets in particular, is that is that true or where are you as far as Europe? So there are these times that you get where like, like Europe especially so many times, it just looks really cheap. And it's happened so often after the global financial crisis, especially like the quintessential poster child of cheapness is like European banks. So like French banks, like, you know, Sokjen, Societe Generale. And I look at it and there's never been a time where you should actually do anything with that. Um, <laughs> I mean, not, that's maybe not fair. There, like you get these trading opportunities, like you buy it at like, I don't know, 30% a book and then you sell it at 60% a book. And that is just a very difficult grinding way to make money. And so we're there now where there's this like dispersion, if you will, in Europe versus say US. And I'm at this point again, where I'm looking at them thinking they've got some issues. Yeah. So while it's cheap, I think... I think there's a lot of value traps there because it's not like the issues they have today weren't present over the last 10 years. They were present, but they were very under the surface. They're like at the surface now. So the issues with, with energy security and what they're going to do and the Spanish government just taxing Spanish industry for so the windfall profits, energy security, like there's a reason for that valuation. So I'm sort of venting a little bit because I'm like, <laughs> I mean, is it ever going to be a point where, the, where like this part of the world is cheap and I can actually like buy it and make money on that cheapness? So uh, Europe is very disappointing. Um, <laughs> you use the term, I'm familiar with it, but um, the audience might not, value trap. Yes. Can you just give me a pricey? Sure. So a stock that is cheap, that is very enticing to buy, but there's no catalyst to make it less cheap. So there's no reason that the valuation will actually sort of repair and in the case of, say, good example, European banks that will sometimes, French banks especially, that will sometimes get to some crazy book multiple, like 30% of book, they look like great value, but they end up being trapped value because there's nothing that will unlock that value. And the reason they get that cheap is because the regulatory environment for banks coming out of the global financial crisis in Europe is very heavy. And when I look at that versus like Citigroup, which also I can buy sometimes at 50% of book. I'm like, for that extra point to a book, I'm going to go Citigroup all the way because they only have to deal with Europe for part of their business, deal with this regulatory environment. Mm. So trap value is when there's really nothing that can unlock it. And that's where the fundamental analysis from the analyst makes a huge difference. Hmm, cool. I'm going to change the conversation to volatility. I love your comments on volatility right now because we're living in volatile times. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to stay volatile around bottoms and, you know, in some ways tops in the market. We're probably one or the other uh, is certainly a big back and forth in the equity market. What is likely to be more volatile than equities is treasuries. 
right? So is yields. And you certainly see that. And I talked about that in a lot of the webcasts I've done because bond market volatility is very rare, but it happens around the time when the Fed alters their balance sheet. So I think that that should be expected as well, both ways in some ways. But I think around equity market volatility, again, when you see wide valuation spreads, the entire risk spectrum tends to, to migrate very, a, a much faster rate. But remember, as an equity market investor, that last bottoming, they are V bottoms, and that last tranche of the downtrend or the washout or whatever has to be discounted, that's the part of the equity market that comes back the fastest. And that's sort of an intrinsic view of volatility in real time. If you remember back to the great financial crisis in February of 2008, there were a lot of indicators sort of brewing that, oh, there, this could be a potential bottom. Their valuation spreads are wide. Defense was expensive. All of the similar things that I was saying. And into that March low, you lost another 15%. I think it was actually 17% into that March low. So that looks completely wrong. And the inaccurate call, if you had just waited until April 1st, you would be in the money off that. Mm -hmm. So that is how fast the equity market can recover mm -hmm. off of those whooshes. So everybody should remember that history when we talk about volatility. There's uh, questions coming in from the audience. They have an app to send them in. Oh, and there's one for each of you. And I'm going to start with you, Ramona, because it, it plays on what she just said. Given the, the rising rate in environment, are you afraid that people might prefer bonds over dividend-paying stocks? Don't erase that first question because that's for Denise. It's a really good question. Bonds over stocks as rates go up. I think there's a generality you can make that when the spread between um, the spread between yield you can get from equity versus fixed income, that spread starts to narrow, then yes, bonds become preferable at the margin. But if rates are going up because there's an inflation problem, then all of a sudden you have to think about um, the effect of inflation on your bond investment versus on your equity investment. And so if inflation is part of the picture, you probably want to stick with equities as long as that spread is not collapsing massively, right? Because especially if you've got an equity investment that sort of like what I like to do, which is to have very high quality stocks. So the quality spread between my funds and the index tends to be like, if the index is 15% ROE, my funds are like 20, 25% ROE. And what that spread gives you is pricing power. So companies that can take all of this massive increase in their costs and pass at least some of it through, if not all, which means that that pricing drops to the bottom line and you're getting real, so greater than nominal, real earnings growth and therefore real dividend growth with bonds cannot compete with. Good. Denise, uh, what sectors will outperform and underperform given your interest rate inflation thesis? Yes. So I should first say, uh, because I didn't say it, the biggest anomaly in the market as I see it is the value in value. The valuation of value. The valuation oh, of value. Okay. So if you look at the relative yield differentials, so versus the like the average top quartile of cheap stocks relative to the overall S&P or any other benchmark measure, you'll see that it's the cheapest. I think it's actually now in the 99th percentile that it's ever been historically. I have data going back to 1990. That matters more than interest rates or inflation as it relates to value over growth performance. So that could be a multi-year tailwind for cheap stocks. But I am so glad that you talked about consumer discretionary because I think that we're really setting up for the potential leadership in the equity market to be the cheap part of consumer discretionary. Okay. 
So look, I, I don't know what that whoosh looks like because yeah. it could be a whoosh, but I think that we need to be prepared to, to look at value there for a, at least a couple of reasons. Again, book spreads, when you have see fear out. have blown out, that is usually a good predictor of the consumer discretionary sector. Consumer sentiment is at all time lows, 100% historic odds of the consumer discretionary sector being an outperformer over the next year. Right? I'm not talking about over the next three months, but over the next year. And then finally, I think that if you want to try and fit my puzzle pieces together, if inflation is likely to decelerate, if we've seen the peak in crude oil prices, but still energy stocks can work because they're cheap, who does that benefit most in terms of real wages accelerating? It's consumer discretionary. So I think that that setup, especially after an underperformance of 30% or more over the last year, is the place where I'm interested the most. And you play in that space. You play in those valuation dispersions, right? Totally. There's a lot of cheap discretionary. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> There's a lot of cheap Retailers, apparel. I'm not like, yeah. I keep thinking, can these yeah. things get any cheaper? Yeah, <laughs> probably. Yeah. And even like food retail, which that's more like staples, right? Yeah, that's staples. But even like food retail, Kroger. like yeah. Kroger or like supermarket stocks, um, which are pretty stable, low beta, I can get supermarket stocks, food stocks for under 10 times earnings, which, yeah. and there's not going to be a ton of variability, relative variability in those earnings. I mean, they will have trouble passing costs through, yes, but relative to other industries like discretionary passing right. costs through. So their earnings variability is not going to be as wide, and I can pay less than 10 times for that all day long. Yeah. Right. For low beta. Are you playing at all? Uh, you, you mentioned Citibank, but are you playing the financials? Yes. So financials in my world tend to constitute 20 to 25% of my index, oh. which is really big because yeah. my, my world is a value world, right? So financials, whereas in the S&P, it's a lot lower. Um, and I think in the Canadian, in the TSX, it's pretty high as well. So I'm never really going to be structurally, um, I'm usually going to be structurally underweight financial. So I'm not trying to have any sector be that big because then you get portfolio construction risk. Um, so the question is, how big do I want that underweight to be? And when financials were, were cheap, then that underweight will be smaller. And recently that underweight got to be bigger. But what's interesting now, because the market is trying to discount recession, all of a sudden, some of my favorite, you know, sort of low quality financials are getting to be around one times book which is a nice place to be on valuation for a reasonable quality bank, say. So I'm starting to become interested in them because they are trying to suss out a recession and therefore like losing it on book, book value valuation. Yeah. Mm. We didn't talk about that sector. Yeah. That, I mean, I think that that's number, oh, actually the, the question was top three sectors. And right. I would say consumer discretionary, financials, and healthcare would wow. be my top three sectors. And then followed by energy would be okay. my fourth. Yeah. What, what's the deal with healthcare? So healthcare is really interesting in the sense that when you've seen the rotation into defense, utilities and staples got, utilities was expensive before the rotation happened and got super expensive. Staples was actually cheap during the rotation and got back to expensive levels. And healthcare was cheap going in and has stayed Stay cheap, <laughs> even despite the outperformance. And I actually think that those valuation spreads are very wide and it is dominated by biotech, non-earning biotech. But it's funny, when you look at biotech, I think that the small biotech stocks will be potentially benefited by a peaking in interest rates, maybe, you know, over the coming 
nine months, but the large cap biotechs are still generating a ton of free cash flow Engine. and ROEs are high. So they're very cheap on them, the cheapest they've ever been. So I think we could actually be setting up for a situation where healthcare is uniquely both defense and offense mm -hmm. in a way that consumer staples and utilities are not. Right. So I think that healthcare could be a secular outperformer here. Okay, but you described what a value trap is, is when the value is there and you can't unlock it. What, what does it take to unlock it in your world? Because it would be healthcare would be a big component. So where I end up in healthcare is in large cap pharma. Mm. And these large biotechs like Amgen that get cheap and have a dividend. So what gets that valuation to move is when what's going on in the valuation of large cap pharma or pharma in general is this incredible skepticism that the drugs that they sell are basically in decline um, because they're going to they're essentially becoming genericized. And the drugs that are, in, that are in their pipeline have no value. So the analysis that our fabulous analysts do is to basically try to figure out how much of the valuation assumes any value to the pipeline. And if you can get a situation where the pipeline has zero to negative value based on what the valuation of the whole company is, knowing what those, you know, what those drugs are supposed to do, then that really is very protective in terms of your downside protection. Because if the folks who analyze the drugs and have decided, you know, like we've got lots of scientists on the team or people with enough science background that they could say, this is probably an okay drug, mm. but the valuation of the stock is saying that it's like actually negative value. When you have a setup like that, then the stock is like really cheap and interesting and protective of downside. Mm. So to me, what unlocks the value is when the drug starts to perform. So, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, get the revenue that, uh, that right. goes along with it. Wow. Which is different than European banks. We're, <laughs> right. we're down to the last two or three minutes. Okay. So what do you, what do the next three months look for, oh, like for you? What areas, what themes three months. do you, oh my God. you focus on? I know. I have no idea what the, the three... Okay. Where do you focus yeah, on? I'm not saying I will, I no predictions. I will focus on two things. Definitely no prediction. Earnings, mm -hmm. which is a critical one. I think that that's really been the, the difference this cycle versus any other cycle is how much earnings have held in and how much this correction has really been just a giant valuation compression, 24 times down to 15 times in the overall market. When that has happened and earnings have held in, you've had 95% odds of market advance over the next year with double-digit returns. So I think the earnings to hang in is very important. So that's certainly something to watch. I think... But you should talk about the work you did I'm just on... Gonna, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I am. <laughs> so <laughs> what I think a lot of people are expecting is that's the next shoe to drop. Right, there you go. Right? So we've already seen the valuation compression. Now it's time. If we're getting a recession, earnings are going to be down 30%. That earnings are going to be down 30% quote is really predicated on like the great financial crisis and low nominal rate environments. That's where you get an earnings contraction. Earnings are nominal. So it's sales versus margins. I mean, you certainly see margin compression, but it still nets out to very low earnings decline. So if you look at the tranches historically, and I think I put this on my LinkedIn, if you look at the tranches, high inflation tranches, really over any three-year time horizon, earnings don't contract any more on average than about 7%. So I think for those waiting for a washout in earnings, you might actually be waiting a long time. But I think that that's the first thing we need to watch. Second thing we need to watch but is that's aggregate market. Inside aggregate. of that, there's oh, going to be all kinds be of, of drama. Yes. yes, yes. And I think that there might be more drama on the internal side than even the external side oh, over yeah. the next year. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so the we'll question see is that. picking the happy drama, not the sad drama. Correct. Inside of like the market overall, you're saying the market overall right. might like, be fine. It might right. be fine, but inside there's Whoa. all kinds of shifting and picking the right ones. Right. 
And I think to, to some extent, the other thing to watch is credit spreads. Yep. So to the extent that we get in this environment over the course of the next six months where inflation does in fact decelerate based on these headwinds, what you actually see statistically is a lower likelihood of credit spreads widening out. And I think that that could be beneficial to value stocks and even financials, even if rates have peaked and go down, what you actually see is the cross corollary is lower credit spreads, even if it's lower rates, it tends to be a beneficial environment for financial stocks. So I think those are the two things I definitely want to keep my eye on, which is earnings and credit spreads. That's okay. Two is fine. Yeah. Oh, you said three. The, the, I don't no, have I'm not going to. Uh, these people are all investors, Ramona. Is a dividend fund a good place to be right now? I think a dividend fund is a good place to be anytime. Always. That's, I agree. Right now. <laughs> Would I be running a dividend fund if I didn't think that? <laughs> So in all seriousness, what we're trying to do, I'll just bring you back to, we're trying to do three things. We're trying to obviously give you excess return, which, you, which we've, we've done. So that's the first goal is that excess return. The second, and that's where most people stop. That's where most funds stop. But then I have two more goals. The second goal is I want to do that in a very risk aware, risk sensitive way. So downside protection. And those two are very much tied in where, where most of that alpha, the majority of that alpha has come from having much better down capture in drawdowns, meaning so the downside protection of the fund. And I think the number over 10 year, like over the 12 years I've done it is um, sort of in the 80s. So when the market goes, goes down one, I'm going down somewhere in the 0.8. And then on the upside, when the market goes up one, I'm going up somewhere in the mid 90s. And when you combine those two as driven by that mid 80s, you're going to get that type of alpha. So those two are interconnected. And then the third part is the dividend part. And so the dividend part has, um, a varying rate of importance. So in low, super low infl inflation regimes, like it's okay, but when you when you got right. inflation, and even though you're arguing it's decelerating, let's it's say it decelerates so, to three so to four, high. to some higher level, all of a sudden the pricing power you get from these high quality dividend paying companies that can pass through that three to four percent inflation shows up in your dividend growth that is real, not nominal. So over that inflation, so that's where the power of the yield comes in. Not to mention it dampens volatility. So your risk-adjusted total return, because you have that volatility dampener, is really good. So the IR, the, the information ratio of the strategy is like 0.6 because of that dampening effect. It basically takes the denominator, right? It, it dampens like the risk in the denominator. So for three reasons, good place to be. Yeah. Ramona, so Denise, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.